So this is going to be a lesson where the whole point is the title. Um, so the point of this lesson is uh, very simple. Jesus does not lead like Saul. And we're going to look at 1 Samuel 14 as kind of the base for the lesson. But we're going to make more introductory thoughts after this. We're going to use 1 Samuel 14 just kind of as an introduction, um, kind of getting a grasp on the problem with Saul's leadership, especially what we see, I think, very, very clearly in 1 Samuel 14, um, the section that Brandon read. And then we're going to contrast that with David, um, and I think reasons why David was a man after God's own heart, how he saw God, specifically how he looked at God's leadership and how that affected him, especially in trials. And then we're going to finish looking at Romans 5 and we're going to look at how we can actually have a grander view of God's leadership than even David could, despite the extraordinary things David says in Psalm 103. So this lesson is really focused on how does God lead? How does Jesus lead? And the reason for this lesson is, uh, I think for a long time here, uh, or at least what what seems like a long time, it seems like so many brethren here have been going through um, ongoing trials of various kinds that um, stretch a lot of us very, very thin and just kind of make things very hard. And a lot of that is just needs that exist around us, you know, things that aren't because of people using their time poorly or making poor decisions. Um, It's actually as a result of just the way life is and serving things that are oftentimes out of our control, whether it be our own health and the difficulties that come from our own health or the health of others, needing to care for others, um, or just difficulties that exist beyond that, emotional difficulties, stress from work or whatever. I think there's a way that Satan can twist ongoing trials and create a lot of discouragement, a lot of weariness, and I think it's really critical. And I think what God's word portrays is it's when we are in trials and we are in persistent trials, one of the greatest things that we can have is our view of God and our understanding of how much God loves us. And if, if that's not in its right position, then what's happened to me many, many times and um, been something I've struggled with even recently is we can begin to think, well, I could be doing this or I should be doing this or I could be doing that better. I don't have time for this and this person has a need and I wish I was reaching out to them better or, oh no, you know, I don't have time for this. And we can easily end up thinking about all of these things I could be doing better and should be doing better. And that just ends up festering a great deal of discouragement and guilt that is not being resolved And we end up becoming extremely critical of ourselves, and that only amplifies the hardness and the exhaustion emotionally and spiritually of a situation. And so I'd like to give a lesson, again, just just looking at how important it is in our struggles to see God's grace and to see it lavishly and understand that Jesus is not a leader like Saul. And I think that should encourage us very, very much. So this is going to be a very simple PowerPoint. This is going to be like the olden days when I just did my main points on the PowerPoint one by one. Um, So we're going to start in 1 Samuel 14 and look at Saul's lack of grace. And um, one of my favorite lessons I've ever taught, it's when I travel, it's my favorite lesson I like to teach when I travel as well. Jonathan overtaking the garrison of the Philistines. One of the great things about chapter 14 at the very beginning is what Jonathan does himself 
it changes the nation enough where you end up having Israel gain enough courage to then battle the Philistines, and that gives an opportunity then for a giant to stand on one side and for a young man to stand on the other, and for uh, that young man to be exalted um, and become one of the most significant people in biblical history. Behind the scenes, though, is Jonathan's victory that led into that. And why that was so important, let's go back just one chapter further in chapter 13. I want to show you a couple things with Saul's leadership. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. And you noticed in the scripture reading where Brandon was reading, um, Jonathan's victory caused in verse 20, chapter 14, 21, the Hebrews who were, imagine they're hiding in cellars and in thickets and in pits. So imagine there would be Hebrews. These are God's people cowering before their enemies. You look in a bush and it's like, is that a little Hebrew hiding in that bush over there? So it's like the people are in a horrible condition and this is, this is a direct result of Saul's leadership. And as the chapter goes on, Saul becomes extremely impatient. The people are fleeing away from him. They're, they're all losing their courage. And Samuel comes and finds that Saul has offered sacrifices, which he was not authorized to offer. He was supposed to wait for Samuel. He didn't. And it's in verse 14 where Samuel tells Saul, the kingdom is being taken away from you because of this, and God is going to give it to another man who is a man after his own heart. Verse 19 through 23, there was no blacksmith in Israel. Only Saul and Jonathan had weapons. They actually had to go to the Philistines and, and pay an extreme price to their enemies, Canaanites. They had to pay them to sharpen their farming equipment. And this was all a result of Saul's leadership. Saul was a leader like the nations around him. I'm sure if Saul was a business leader in the world today, he would be very, very successful business-wise, right? He'd be a great manager at a business within the world, but we're talking about God's people, right? And so Samuel had told the people ahead of time, this would not be a gracious leader. He was going to take and take and take and take, and the people said, whatever, we just want a leader like the nations around us to fight our battles. Give it to us. And thus, they have Saul. So chapter 14, we've caught up there. Jonathan goes out on his own in faith and begins this incredible victory, not domineering volunteers, which I guess if they're domineered, they're no longer volunteers. But he just, he goes out by himself and God works with Jonathan miraculously. The Hebrews regain courage. There's this incredible momentum. Saul ends up coming out to the battle and it ruins everything. By the end of this chapter, what could have been a grand victory for Israel, as soon as Saul gets involved, it comes to a halt, and Saul nearly kills his own son in a conflict that happens. Let's, let's reread verse 24 through verse 31, and we'll just mainly focus here. Now, the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day. Notice this, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So, none of the people tasted food. All the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. And the people entered the forest, behold, when the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father had put the people under oath. Therefore he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped in the honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth. And his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people 
were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found? For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. They struck the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aegelon, and the people were very weary or very faint. You notice three times it emphasizes that the people were weary. The beginning of 24, the end of 28, and the end of 31. People were hard-pressed. The people were weary. The people were weary. Why were they weary? Well, Saul had made this oath, and if your Bible is like mine, uh, the New American Standard, there's a heading that says Saul's foolish order. Did Saul need to make that oath? Was that necessary? Did that do anything good? I mean, the people already were volunteering. They were already following Saul. They were already excited to go out against the Philistines and retake God's territory that inherently belonged to them. God was very clearly supporting them before this. Not only did Jonathan go out alone with his armor bearer and won a great and very impossible victory, there was like this earthquake that God caused that caused the Philistines to flee and become disoriented. It says earlier their swords were against one another and there was a confusion. So they're already like killing one another. They're confused, they're disoriented, they're fleeing. And, and just completely unnecessary, Saul makes this oath that the people are willing to obey that just wears everybody out. And I think this is a lot like when we get discouraged, when we're getting stretched thin, when we're not getting sleep, and we can begin to put expectations on ourselves, oftentimes because of a good and caring heart. You know, like we want to do good. We want to help others. We're aware of certain needs that oftentimes themselves require more than what we can give anyway. And we can just end up becoming so critical of ourselves that we just end up being stripped of any possibility of encouragement, right? And so because of Saul's leadership, people who are doing God's work now, who are gaining courage, that work now was not only being hindered, but wouldn't be able to be accomplished as it could have if Saul had just given greater grace to the people of Israel. Jesus does not lead like this. And by the way, this can happen in a local church. So after this, you know, the people end up greedily going on the spoil. They eat it with the blood. The people are at fault there. But who caused that? I think it's ultimately Saul and his leadership, you know, really led to that problem. And then when he finds out Jonathan ate some honey, he tells Jonathan, yep, you're dead. And the people end up saving Jonathan from that just, again, extraordinarily foolish order. And just created more opportunity for judgment, right? It created more opportunity for judgment. Prideful leadership among God's people, I've seen this happen, where you have people who are weary, people who are trying to do the right thing, but the leadership has no compassion, no understanding of the hardships people are facing, and maybe with what seems to be good intentions, they're trying to do all sorts of things and trying to push people to involve themselves and just wearing everybody out and just pushing people who are already being pushed beyond what they can do anyway, and then that just creates a culture of not only people being weary, but then creating a culture where people are being looked at harshly, people are being judged harshly. And again, all of this is a lack of fundamentally understanding grace and fundamentally the grace of God. And so I just want to introduce this, that what we see in Saul, the effect he was having on the people, 
is the opposite of what we're going to see with God. And I think it's so important that in our trials, when we're getting stretched thin, that we strive to remember the grace like what we see David express in Psalm 103, if you turn there. Psalm 103, and we're not going to read the whole psalm. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. So there are 150 psalms. There's um, a theme in the psalms where the psalmists usually write because they are in trials that are ongoing and they're being stretched in. So it's kind of difficult, like, well, what, what psalm do we go to? But I think this psalm encapsulates, really brings together what it was, not only that was behind David's endurance and the joy that he had in the Lord and the faith that he had in the Lord, but what was growing even through his trials that would lead him to speak of God's grace and speak of God and his relationship with God with the kind of exuberance that we see in Psalm 103. So again, the Psalms, really their greatest theme is the people writing these Psalms are oftentimes in trials. And I think that makes it a great example then to see, well, how did people like David view God in their trials? How did they view God's leadership? So that's what we're going to see in verses 1 through 14. So Psalm 103, a Psalm of David, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children... So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. So in this psalm particularly, I think it's a great model of what humility looks like. Is it arrogant to dwell on God's love for us on a personal level, to dwell on the riches of that love, the depth of that love, the extent of that love? Is it arrogant to focus on that so personally? Or is it humility to focus on that so personally? I say that because I think what can happen if you're like me, and I've seen this happen with me, that I'll think about God's mercy. And I'll think about my need for forgiveness, and I'm so glad that God is willing to forgive me. But then I won't think about the ongoing extent of his grace of his love that remains more constant, how special that love is that continues and grows. And so I'll think about mercy. And so if I sin or, you know, if I'm needing help and strength, you know, I'll pray to God for strength and I'll pray for forgiveness, but then I won't dwell on 
his love and grace beyond those moments. I won't dwell on the compassion that God has on me as much as I dwell on my need for forgiveness, right? Is that what we see in the psalm? You see that David sees in very vivid terms, verse 11 and 12, God's forgiveness. But he's looking so far beyond just forgiveness of sin that he's looking at the extent of the grace and the love and the intimacy and the investment that God has for him. So if you look at verse 2, forget none of his benefits. It's like David is trying to keep a careful record of all the things that God is doing for him. And by the way, think of David's life. Was David someone familiar with trials? Was he familiar with things that stretch thin, that it's like it pulls the rug out from underneath you and all of a sudden life is dramatically different than you would expect and there seems to be no escape and the only way that you could escape is if you abandoned the Lord and his will and so God's just going to keep me here and there's just no way out if I'm going to keep serving the Lord. David was somebody very familiar with that. But what that would do is it would equip David through the Psalms to look at God's love and deliverance in an extraordinarily special way. And so verse 3 through 5, who is he talking to? When he says, who pardons all your iniquities, who is he talking to? I would argue he's not talking to the reader. I mean, it, it benefits us to read this. But I would argue that David is talking to himself. That as he said, forget none of his benefits, that David is saying, don't forget David, that God pardons all of your iniquities. He heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. In verse four, this word loving kindness, this is a very special Old Testament word that I think it brings together what the New Testament would just refer to as grace. But grace is not really a, a word that's used much in the Old Testament. We see here in verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. But grace is not used as much in the Old Testament. You do have this word, loving kindness. This is a word that is hard to define in a dictionary type way. Because really, it's more referring to God's activity God's faithfulness to his covenant, his faithfulness in his love, his ongoing work that relates back to promises, loving promises that he had made. So this is a very important, important word that encapsulates so many important qualities of God's grace and character. And he uses this word in this psalm again and again. To kind of bring out more of like why this word is so important. So this is an Old Testament word, again, that has great significance. In the books of the Bible in general, so Second Chronicles has the second most uses of the word loving kindness. It's used seven times. In Genesis and Jeremiah, they're tied for third place with five uses. Psalms comes in first. Uses of the word loving kindness. This word that encapsulates God's faithfulness to his promises, his graciousness, his love, his generosity. Second Chronicles, seven times. This word is used 121 times in the Psalms. This word is the anthem of the prayers of the psalmists. It's the anthem of their view of God. It is what is behind the praise that they give to God, the adoration that they give, is they are continuously seeing greater depth and giving greater weight and seeing greater power 
in the loving kindness of God towards them, not just in a broad sense of, God, I'm glad you do this for them, or I'm glad you've done this before, or I'm glad you did this when you forgave me of that sin I committed a long time ago. No, this encapsulates the identity and what is at the center of the psalmist's love for God in an ongoing and persistent way. It is what equips them in their perseverance. Verse 5. Does David see God as being a cruel taskmaster? Does he see God as stripping him of all his life, of stripping him of all his energy, of robbing him of all the motivation that he has for anything and just seizing all the motive and encouragement he could have? No, he sees God, again, in this very interesting image, he renews his youth like an eagle. You know, so it's like David can take flight because of the loving kindness of the Lord. You know, so David sees God as bringing him life and renewal and restoration. And God is responsible for all of these intimate acts of deliverance and preservation that are happening in his life. In verse 6, he sees that God particularly performs righteous deeds and judgments for a specific group of people, for the oppressed. Jesus is a leader like no other. Jesus is not a manager like any manager we've had at our workplaces. And it doesn't matter how good our managers are or our bosses are. He's a teacher unlike any teacher that we've ever had in our lives. It doesn't matter how good your high school or college teachers are or have been. And he's also a father unlike any other. Look at verse 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. We have a lot of fathers in here who love our children, and you see the love you have for your children. But the way that God loves you and me on an individual level exceeds any degree of love that we can even have for our own children. You know, there's not many analogies that can be made that in any adequacy present our relationship with God in any fair way. But in verse 13, if your child is hurting, if they feel guilty, if they're in pain, and they're crying and they're weary, is it love to push them harder, to ignore them, to demand more out of them? You may be like me and have had people close to you in your life, and maybe this is you as well, where you've seen the effects of parents whose children could never do enough. I've known people where their fathers, they would present something to their fathers, they, they tried really hard, maybe it was on a test at school, they didn't get their, the grade that their parent you know, hoped they would get, and it's not enough. Even if the child tried, even if they were really investing themselves, it just it wasn't enough, and it never was enough. In your experience, and again, maybe this is true of you, did that general attitude in that relationship cultivate closeness, would you go to that person for comfort, for help? Yeah, I see Stephen is nodding his head. No, I mean, that's, that's exactly it, right? And so if we see God only as this domineering master where, you know, you've got to do this and you're not doing this right and you've got to meet all of these expectations and you're failing and you're failing and you're failing, are we going to think of God as an adequate source of comfort if that's how we're viewing God in our trials? I would argue not. So again, the way that David sees God is that God is lavishing this incredible grace 
that only God is able to adequately define and describe and demonstrate that God has removed sins like the east from the west, as high as the heavens are from the earth, that's as great as his loving kindness is toward those who fear him. As we go to Romans 5, there's something critical that I think we need to understand as we transition here. These are incredible statements, right? Like I look at the motive that David had saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I, I read this. And I read the passion, the explosiveness, and when I compare myself, I fall short. And what what is convicting about this is David, even at this point in this psalm, is he aware of just how far God's love will still go? Is he aware of the depth of what God is going to demonstrate in the sacrifice of his own son? Listen, These are incredible truths. But David is expressing broken and incomplete truths of God's grace. And those incomplete truths are motivating him to be drawn to God and to be in awe of him. This, this is what was underlying the endurance of the psalmists. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5 and we'll look at verse 1 through 11. Um, to look at the extent of grace that we have access to in Christ Jesus, which again exceeds what David could have even imagined in thinking about the loving kindness of God and the compassion that God has on his people. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. And I want you to carefully consider the incredible language describing God's grace towards us. And how important it is to think about that, not just as a generality, but personally. Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that our tribulations brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. There's a key word here, exult. That's a psalm word. You know, so the things that are said here in Romans 5 are meant to convey that that exaltation, that explosive praise that we see the psalmists giving to God because of his loving kindness, because of his deliverance, because of his forgiveness, that can now be taken exceedingly further because those same truths that anchored them 
have now been so much more exceedingly and abundantly perfectly demonstrated through the person Jesus and what he has done for us. So the idea that I want to convey with Romans 5, 1 through 11, grace is what begins a relationship with God. Grace is what sustains our relationship with God. Grace is what motivates our relationship with God. And it's grace that perfects our relationship with God and completes our relationship with God. That's what we see here in Romans 5, 1 through 11. So looking at some of the things that are said here in verses 1 through 5, you notice he says, we've received our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And again, when you see that word grace, this is like the loving kindness of the Lord. This isn't just that he's forgiven us and then he takes a step back and kind of watches our life and is like, okay, let's, let's, let's see what they do. Let's see how they handle this. It's that God has poured himself into our lives. And that's verse 5. We're able to have hope that does not disappoint because of the love of God that's been poured out into our hearts, within our hearts, the most intimate way God could connect with us and pour his love into us, God has done it through his Holy Spirit who is given to us. And what does that look like? Verse 6, is God's grace, his loving kindness, is it demonstrated that that grace depends on our merit? Or us doing all of the things that we wish we could do or making all of the good decisions that we feel we ought to make? Notice in verse 6, while we were helpless, before we could do anything to please God, God was demonstrating his love even for the ungodly. And the end of verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. So beyond being helpless and not being able to merit any degree of God's love, we were actively hostile, an enemy of God. And while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us to convert us on the basis of grace. So I want to say something that may sound strange, but I want to say it definitively. We cannot sin, and we will only give in to temptation when we've lost sight of grace. We become discouraged to the point of despair or withdrawal when we lose sight of God's grace. Because it's grace that sustains our perseverance. It's God's love that encourages our hope. It's our proven character that comes out of that, that encourages us to grow as we can in whatever we're able to do. But it's the grace of God demonstrated in the death of his son and the condition we were in when he died for us that reveals greater truths of what sustains our relationship with God on a daily and continuous basis. This is what we're meant to remember every week when we take the Lord's Supper together. I think there's a misunderstanding that can easily happen with the Lord's Supper that we're supposed to be like reliving our guilt every week, week to week, you know, that we remember how horrible we are and how impossible it is to please God. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remember the extent of grace that's given to us, that the grace that began our relationship with God in the death of Jesus Christ, 
is the grace that is still fully sustaining my relationship with God. That no matter how I've chosen to handle this past week, when we come together on the first day of the week and partake of the emblems of his body, we're remembering that Jesus, that God, the Holy Spirit, that God in his fullness, he demonstrated, he gives me everything of his being, holding nothing back. When we drink the grape juice to remember his blood, that God is continuously giving his life for me just as much now as he did when I began my faith, when I was baptized into Christ. That all of those truths that began my faith and drew me to God, the point of the Lord's Supper is I should understand more every week how far that love goes. That I should have a deeper appreciation for the incredible, unfathomable riches of grace that continue to sustain my relationship with God. And again, when we go back to David, are these just general truths that when we read Romans, we simply mentally agree with the information and say, yeah, 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 you know, I've been saved by grace, Jesus died for me, that's, that's encouraging, that's good. Or are these truths that, like the psalmists, they took, they carried with them, they meditated on them, they understood them more deeply as they experienced trials and then the joy that they had in that grace and loving kindness sustained and encouraged them when every other thing and every other relationship had failed catastrophically. And all they had left again and again and again was the loving kindness, the compassion, the forgiveness, the care that God had towards them. The invitation is this in Matthew 11:28 through 30. And more and more, this becomes one of my favorite invitations that Jesus ever made in his ministry. Matthew 11:28 through 30. And this is one of my favorite invitations because this is as much for a person who has not yet taken on Christ. They have not yet followed him, submitted to him, and surrendered their life to him in belief and repentance and baptism. This is as much an invitation for us, those of us who are struggling and being stretched. This continues to be Jesus' invitation today. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What David expressed about God in Psalm 103, Jesus is inviting us to see the gates are wide open. That for those who are wearied by life and heavy laden with burdens, Jesus not only opened the gates wide, but he said, I'm the shepherd who will do these things for you, for you personally, I will do these things. Because Jesus is not a harsh taskmaster. He's not like our managers at work who are trying to wring us out for everything we're worth, who doesn't recognize or is pleased with whatever we do when we're trying our best. He's not like a father who never sees enough in their children's efforts. But God can be pleased and is pleased and already demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners in active hostility against him and his son. With this lesson, it had crossed my mind to potentially talk about some of the 
burdens that are um, weighing down the brethren here. Um, But that might be awkward for some and take a lot of time. But I just want to say at the end of this lesson that when we put all of this together, I just want to encourage you to think very personally, all of us, every one of us, because I think we're all going through various difficult trials that for each of us in our own way, they stretch us, they wear us thin, um, and they can be very difficult and Satan can take opportunity. I really want to encourage you, think about God's love for you. Not as a harsh taskmaster, not as someone who is distant, but think about what the death of Jesus Christ, while we were sinners, what does that reveal about God's love for you right now? and his desire to give you rest, to carry your burdens with you, and to serve you for the perfection of your faith in the end. If you're here this morning and there's anything we can do for you, the invitation of Jesus lies open for all. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give rest to those who are weary. If there's anything we can do for you, bring it forward. We'll stand and sing our invitation song.